Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. We're going to be working our way through the passage that Brother Josh read earlier from uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And let me introduce it briefly. First of all, it might feel heavy as we go through this passage. And that's because it is. It is a heavy passage. And the reason it's a heavy passage is because the Apostle Paul is uh, making his way, he's making the case for the gospel. The good news that in spite of what we deserve because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, our guilt before God, in spite of that, there is salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came and uh, poured out his life as an atonement for human sin. But in the thinking of the Apostle Paul, that good news about Jesus and salvation in him depends on first understanding the bad news of our natural condition in sin. To think of it another way, if you uh, think about a court of law, um, if, if there was a convicted criminal who was pardoned either by the president in a federal case or some other governing authority and maybe in a state case, I don't know if the governor has, I think the governor does have the power to uh, grant clemency or something. But in order for a convicted criminal to understand what an incredible gift his or her pardon is, first they have to go through the process of being convicted. First they have to be shown guilty. They have to be shown to be guilty. And then their pardon is a very, very important and valuable thing. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. In uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, it's basically Paul's closing argument in the first part of the book in his case against all of fallen mankind. He's trying to show that all of fallen mankind, including, by the way, you and me, we are all in and of ourselves, uh, outside of the grace of God, we are all guilty, under sin, condemned, worthy of the wrath of God. Paul spends 20 verses here to lay out that closing argument. But remember, again, as we make our way through it, um, it's a means to an end, the, men, the end being the good news of the gospel. And uh, hopefully we'll make that plain too before we're, we're through. All right, Paul's closing argument, mankind's universal guilt. So um, we're going to notice that Paul um, makes his case through the use of some uh, rhetorical questions. He asks a bunch of questions and then he supplies the answers to those questions. So we're going to use that method as we seek to understand Paul's argument here 
in Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. So there's four questions that we're going to ask as we go through the passage. And the first one is, what about the Jews? Verses 1 through 4. What about the Jews? Paul asks that question in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And of course, the reason why Paul asks those questions in verse 1 is because of what he has been saying in the previous verses. He's been showing in Romans chapter 2 that Jews who have the word of God, they have the law of God, are no better off compared to Gentiles who have the word of God written in their hearts, those Gentiles who in some way, shape, or form actually do the word of God, if Jews only possess the word of God but don't do it. And the, the uh, climax of that part of his argument is in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where Paul wrote, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so it's, it's in response to that statement from Paul that he then raises this uh, potential question from somebody who would object, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And you'll notice that he answers his question in verse 2. Much in every way. So the Jews have or had a great advantage. It's not the advantage that they thought. They thought that they were inherently righteous before God. They were on a different level compared to everybody else in terms of their standing before God because they were Jews. They were God's special people. They thought that's the nature of their advantage. And Paul destroys that argument but then he does grant and even celebrate the fact that the Jews did have much advantage. For example, he says at the end of verse 2, to begin with, or number one, most importantly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the word of God. The special revelation of the mind and will of God through the prophets of the Old Testament and summarized and preserved and inscripturated in the Old Testament scriptures themselves. The 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures. The oracles of God. The Jews had the tremendous privilege of possessing the word of God. But, as we've already heard from Paul, merely possessing the word of God did not automatically produce faithfulness among the Jews. And so, 
in verse 3, he basically comes back to what he has been um, so carefully proving in chapter 2. So the beginning of verse 3. Well, what if some were unfaithful? The Jews, the old covenant people of God, had the oracles of God. They had the word of God. But we know from the history of the Old Testament that some were unfaithful. In fact, it seems like there were large swaths of Old Testament history in which most of the Jews were unfaithful. And there was only a remnant of true Jews who actually had circumcised hearts and loved God and worshipped him alone and followed him. Still, his question stands, what if some were unfaithful? Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's the lament of the prophet Isaiah doing what God called him to do, preaching the word of God among the Jews, and yet it was as if nobody believed what Isaiah was preaching. So then that leads to Paul's next question in the second half of verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul uses this comparison between the unfaithfulness of the Old Testament Jews who had the word of God, didn't keep it on the one hand, and the faithfulness of God. Does the faithlessness of people nullify the faithfulness of God? The thinking behind this question is something like this. If the advantage of the Jews was being in possession of the word of God, and we've seen that that was a great advantage to them, which many of them were unfaithful to, like Isaiah attested to, then doesn't that make God himself unfaithful for giving them his word in the first place? They had the word. They were unfaithful. Why did God give them the word in the first place? Does that make God himself unfaithful? And Paul answers this question as well in verse 4. By no means. Absolutely not. No room for that kind of objection. And he goes on to say in verse 4, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And there he's quoting from Psalm 51. And uh, here, um, Paul is trying to reinforce that God cannot be blamed if in kindness he entrusts people with his word and those same people prove to be unfaithful. So that's what's up with the Jews. 
That's in answer to the question, what about the Jews? They had tremendous spiritual privileges, especially possession of the word of God, but their privileges didn't guarantee their faithfulness or their righteousness. And it doesn't impugn God either. And that leads to our next question then. So number one, what about the Jews? Number two, is God unrighteous? Is God unrighteous? Notice verse five. Paul raises this potential objection. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? This is a very interesting objection. Because here Paul is um, acknowledging what he had already said about uh, the wrath of God in chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By the way, there's a sense in which uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 in that paragraph is Paul's opening argument in uh, making the case of the universal guilt of mankind. And what we're seeing now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, this is his closing argument. So what Paul has been laboring to say is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And one example of that unrighteousness is the Jews' rejection of the word of God in the Old Testament. And we, we could add to, to that, by the way, that another example of this kind of unrighteousness that Paul is speaking of would be anyone with any kind of Christian background and exposure to the Christian faith who rejects it and is, and is then judged by God based on that exposure to truth. And Paul is assuming in verse 5 that unrighteousness from people ultimately shows forth the righteousness of God, which is pretty amazing. That is the kind of uh, all-consuming, all-inclusive glory of God that Paul had. Paul saw the glory of God in everything. Paul assumed that God could not fail. Paul assumed that even on the last day, when we all give an account, that those who are shown to be unrighteous in the rejection of the truth of God and are, and are then judged by God, even that unrighteousness is going to show the righteousness of God through his wrath. Those are hard words to say and to hear. Because a lot of fallen human beings like us we have this assumption 
that um, God is only glorified when people are saved and if at, uh, when the last day comes and goes, if there's not enough people saved, then somehow God is going to miss out on his own glory. And I'll just have you know, that's impossible. That's impossible. God is ultimately glorified even in the judgment of the unrighteous because it shows forth his holiness his justice, and, like Paul points out, God's own righteousness. But then here's how Paul answers this objection. You'll notice that he uh, completes verse 5 by saying, he raises the question, what shall we say? Then he says that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Then he wants to make sure we understand, I speak in a human way. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not uh, what the Holy Spirit is imparting to Paul. But this is what people naturally, this is how people naturally think. How can a sinner be responsible for his own sins when God ultimately is sovereign over everything. That's really what's at the heart of this objection. So how does it, Paul answer it? Verse 6, by no means. By no means. Certainly not. And then here's his logic. For then, how could God judge the world? So here... Paul is referring to a bedrock statement of faith that the Jews assented to. This is um, without question. This is a tenet of Old Testament revealed religion that in fact God will judge the world. In Psalm 9 and uh, verse 8, for example, we read that God judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And the reason why a passage like that is so important in Paul's argument is if we just let God be God, in terms of how he deals with his creatures, how he deals with his fallen image bearers. If we just let God be God, and then we fast forward to the judgment, we can be sure that when God judges the world, it will be with righteousness. There will be no unrighteousness in God's judgment. Sinners will be judged in accordance with their works. He judges the peoples with uprightness. It will be perfectly upright, above board, according to his law, fair, just. There will be no hint of any example of any fallen sinner who will get judgment from God that that sinner does not deserve. 
every judged sinner will get on that day what they deserve. That is bedrock. Therefore, according to Paul's thinking, God's judgment against sinners is by definition righteous. By definition. Even though that judgment ends up showing forth the righteousness of God. God ends up being glorified in the process. Paul elaborates, verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, there's an example of a sin telling a lie. And Paul is trying to point out that even in the example of lies that people tell, on the day of judgment, God's truth will abound to his glory in judging liars. But if that's true, Paul says, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And in fact, he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. So that's the scuttlebutt that was going about in the areas where Paul was preaching the gospel. Probably mainly Jewish people were slanderously spreading the, um, the rumor that Paul's message was basically, go ahead and do evil that good may come. They were trying to say that's the Christian message. That's what Paul is preaching. And he answers that at the end of verse 8 simply by, say, by saying their condemnation is just. And so the, the takeaway there is that the Bible never defends God by appealing to human reason and human justice. It never does that. And that's because it's impossible. Because God is his own standard. God is by definition of who he is as God, holy and righteous and just. And when people try to put God in the, on the witness stand, the biblical response is, but who are you, O oh man, to reply against God? We're going to see that more in Romans chapter 9. So Paul does not try to defend God in human terms or by uh, a human understanding of logic. He, he, he simply takes some examples of the judgment and the righteousness and the justice of God that all believers in the Old Testament affirm in saying, and he says, just remember that. And so people are always without excuse for their sin and unrighteousness, even though sin itself ultimately abounds to the glory of God through the judgment and wrath of God. And the Bible has lots of examples of people like that. I'll, I'll name you one. Judas. Judas Iscariot. And you know, 
what Judas Iscariot was guilty of. He betrayed the Lord. He was the one who sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus says concerning Judas Iscariot in Luke 22 and verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, what is going to happen concerning Judas Iscariot is exactly what God had determined would happen. It's all part of God's plan. There's nothing outside of God's eternal will. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 that God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. And all things includes the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. So again, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So both aspects of reality from Jesus' lips in the same sentence. The absolute sovereignty of God in determining what Judas would do ahead of time. And then Judas's responsibility as a sinner in betraying Jesus. There's no attempt from Jesus's lips in trying to explain how those two aspects of reality fit together, Jesus simply says them. God is absolutely sovereign. Men are absolutely responsible for their, their decisions. That is the flow of Paul's thought in verses 1 through 8. So, oh, I didn't advance, sorry. Is God unrighteous? No. <laughs> All right. Let's move on now and uh, listen to Paul. What about the Jews? Is God unrighteous? Are there any righteous people? Are there any righteous people? We've already seen, I trust, the, the case of the Jews, and in particular, um, the, the Jews who merely possessed the word of God but didn't do the word of God. But what about people in general? What about all of mankind? Are there any righteous people? Notice what Paul says in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? We've been introduced to this thought already, uh, the mentality that the, the Jews were a cut above everybody else. Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged, see Romans chapter 2, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, the Greeks mainly in Romans chapter 1, the Jews mainly in Romans chapter 2, are under sin. By the way, both Jews and Greeks is not meant to limit Paul's scope as if we're only talking about Jews and Greeks because we might be tempted to think, whoa, whew, I sure dodged that bullet. I'm neither a Jew nor a Greek. But 
these are actually representative categories from Paul to refer to all of fallen mankind. In other words, we are all either Jews or Greeks. We're all either Jews or Gentiles. The reason he mentions Greeks is because they were famous for their philosophy and their wisdom and their, their ethics. And so if he can prove that Greeks are unrighteous by nature or that there are no righteous Greeks as well as Jews, then he has proven that we are all unrighteous. So this is you and me. I just want you to know. Paul is talking to us. He's talking to you. Both Jews and Greeks, all members of fallen humanity are under sin. Now, Paul goes on to quote a whole bunch of different Old Testament texts to prove his point. And the reason that he's doing that is because he wants to be careful to make sure that we understand that Paul is not making this up. Paul is not bringing something new into the world. No, this is what God has always revealed throughout the Old Testament. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. And so, in verses 10 through 12, he quotes from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. And he says, None is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. No, not one. And before we go past that, let me address what some of you might be thinking. None is righteous, no, not one. Wait a minute. What about Noah? How does Noah fit into this description from Paul? So keep your finger here in Romans 3 and look backwards in your Bibles to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We'll do this quickly. But in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, we have this description from God through Moses concerning Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean when you say, none is righteous, no, not one? Because I read right here in my Bible in black and white that Noah was a righteous man. So is Paul wrong? Remember, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Paul did not make up these words, none is righteous, no, not one. You can read about them, you can read them yourself in the Old Testament. So, was Noah an exception? Well, notice what we see in chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is not a flattering statement. It's, it's just as comprehensive, it's just as damning and unflattering as it sounds and then some. This is God's assessment of the righteous judge of all the earth. This is God's assessment of fallen mankind. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So then based on verse 9, we must think, well, good thing that Noah was an exception. Somehow or another, Noah bypassed original sin. And he ended up being a righteous and blameless man so that he was not like everybody else in chapter 6 and verse 5. Good thing that Noah was an exception. I hope you don't believe that. Again, there is none righteous, no, not one, no, not even Noah. Noah, in and of himself, Noah, apart from the redeeming grace of God, is included in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. But then how do we go from Noah being wicked like everybody else, and described in those terms, how do we go from Noah being included in Genesis 6 and verse 5 to Noah being a righteous man? Verse 8, that's how we got there. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now for grace... To be grace, which is unmerited favor, sinners who get the opposite of what they deserve from God, then it has to be a free gift. It cannot be because of anything that we do. It can't be that the sinner deserves it at all. Noah found sheer grace. Noah found absolute grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah did not deserve what he found from the Lord. That is the difference between Noah as he's described in Genesis 6 and verse 5 and Noah as he's described in Genesis 6 and verse 9. So what makes the difference in Noah? Not Noah. What makes the difference in righteous Noah is the grace of God. You need to see that. If you don't see that, you're not much different than a Mormon, really. But this is the teaching of the Bible. What sets sinners apart from all other sinners is not anything in the sinner. It's simply the grace of God. Paul, for example, in another place, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, said, For who sees anything different in you 
What sets you apart from any other sinner, in other words? He goes on, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's no grounds for boasting. We can't boast. Noah could not boast. Noah was who he was by the grace of God. And so the biblical description of fallen mankind, none is righteous, no, not one, applies to even Noah. He was not righteous in and of himself. His righteousness his practical righteousness, which set him apart from the rest of his wicked generation, was itself a gift of God's grace. Back to Romans chapter 3. Paul continues his biblical condemnation of fallen mankind. No one understands no one seeks for God. And I'll just pause there. No one seeks for God? Really? What about Jeremiah 29 and verse 13? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with, your, with all your heart. That's a promise from God. How does Jeremiah 29, 13 fit in with Romans 3 and verse 11. No one seeks God. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Whatever God demands, he also grants. In other words, we as fallen human beings in and of ourselves utilizing the spiritual resources that we bring to the table, which are nothing, we would never seek God if left to our own. I quoted to you from Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. Here's Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. Yes, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, God says, this is what is behind the scenes. Yes, I give you an invitation. If you will seek me and find me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That is an invitation and it is legit. It's valid. It's true. But behind the scenes, in the spiritual dimension, in the kingdom of grace, God loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, he draws us. We seek God because he first loved us with an everlasting love. And God draws us to himself. In the words of Jesus, John 6, 44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Left to our own devices, to our own resources, none of us would ever seek after God. 
God takes the initiative out of his everlasting love, out of his sovereign grace. Then we seek him as a result. Paul's not done. Notice verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here I would just refer you to Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, where the, the wise preacher wrote, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And as an example of what sin looks like coming from depraved humanity, Paul in verse 13 quotes from Psalm 5 and Psalm 140. And he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Remember that Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the, the mouth speaks. And so when there's poison that comes from our tongues, it's because there's poison in our hearts. There's an open grave, our, our mouths. When we say evil things, verse 14 is a quote from Psalm 10 and verse 7. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verses 15 and 17 is a citation from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their mouths, uh, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Sometimes we're amazed at all of the blood that is shed in terms of the sin of abortion, in terms of crime and murder and war. Really, the amazing thing, if you think about it, is that more blood is not shed because of the sinfulness, the depravity of fallen mankind. Their feet are swift to shed blood, the Bible says. And then... Verse 18, cited from uh, Psalm 36 and verse 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fallen mankind by nature lives in such a way and does things as if there is no God. God doesn't see. He doesn't care. There's no day of judgment. No fear of God. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And if you get in my way, I'll make you die. That's the attitude of fallen mankind. So, are there any righteous people? No. Well then, number four, can anyone be justified by keeping the law? Is that what the purpose of the law was? You think about the Ten Commandments. Are those ten steps on the ladder to heaven? Can anyone be justified by keeping the law? 
based on what we've already seen, we should say, well, no, of course not. But notice what Paul says in verse 19. Here is basically the verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, every one of us, regardless of our background, the whole world may be held accountable to God or the whole world may be guilty before God. That's the verdict, guilty. Every one of us. And there's no appeal to a higher authority. There's no objections. But, 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 every mouth will be stopped, Paul says. And then here's the legal basis of this verdict. It's in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, the Jews tended to think that the law was a means for achieving righteousness before God. It was a means for them to establish their own righteousness. But that's not why God gave the law. For years now, I have been having CT scans on my heart. I think it was, I think it may have been 2009, the first time that that aneurysm in my aorta was discovered through a CT scan. And then between 2009 and uh, when I finally had my open heart surgery in 2017, I can't even tell you how many CT scans I've had. It could be that I'll never die of a ruptured aneurysm, but I'm going to die from all these CT scans. I've had lots of CT scans, and I'll continue to do so, apparently, to keep tabs on it. But no matter how many CT scans I've had on my, on my heart, on my aorta, those CT scans never did anything in terms of repairing that aorta that was ballooning. That's not what a CT scan does. It's incapable of doing it. A CT scan cannot heal. All it can do is reveal. That's the law of God. The law of God is incapable of healing. It cannot bring salvation. The only thing the law of God can do is to reveal our sin and our guilt. That's what Paul says. And so, if we just left now, we went through Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. Would you be in a good mood? I mean, this was all bad news. It is. This is, frankly, God's case against us in our fallenness. This is not good news. Paul is going to go on now for a lot of the rest of the book of Romans to explain the good news. And I'm not going to steal Paul's thunder, but let me just say that the whole reason for Paul bringing out 
our just condemnation before God is so that we would turn to Jesus Christ and receive the good news of our salvation. So here's a quick sneak peek. Verses 24 and 25. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is the good news. And so to go back to the courtroom metaphor, instead of us being condemned and pronounced guilty before God, that's actually what Jesus did. What happens is in the courtroom of God, and I can't explain it perfectly, but in the courtroom of God, after our verdict is pronounced, Jesus enters the courtroom as it were. In fact, let's say Jesus steps down from the judge's bench and he says, even though you are guilty and justly condemned because of your sin, I have paid the price for your guilt. I have become guilty in your place. You, it turns out, have been redeemed from the curse of the law because I, the righteous judge, I was cursed in your place. The Bible says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the good news. And doesn't that good news look gloriously good against the backdrop of the bad news of our guilt? And notice that the good news has nothing to do with you or me. We do deserve to be judged and condemned. The good news is, in spite of what you deserve, in spite of what you've ever done or ever hoped to do, in spite of all of that filth and pollution and dirt, in spite of that, God receives sinners just like you who come to his son through faith casting themselves upon the mercy of the court and not saying, oh, I deserve better than this, but saying, Lord, I deserve exactly what you say I deserve, but on account of Jesus, on account of Jesus, receive me, forgive me, save me. And our invitation to you is do that today and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible message from your word that the judge of all of the earth, the judge who knows the deepest, darkest secrets of our hearts, you, our judge, have condescended to be our Redeemer, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for the salvation that you have purchased, for the redemption that we enjoy through faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up blind eyes even in this place today and bring the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit so that many would be saved even in our midst today. For we pray in Jesus' worthy name, amen.